Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Friday, October 14th. I am Meltree Sharp, co-founder and managing partner of CLE Consulting Firm and treasurer of the Deaconess Foundation. I'm pleased to introduce today's forum, which is in partnership with the Deaconess Foundation for their second annual Deborah VC Systems Change Champion Award. Deborah VC was the longtime president and CEO of the Deaconess Foundation and retired in September 2020. She worked tirelessly to positively transform the workforce development system, making sure job seekers were successful in filling the needs of our local businesses. We are grateful that Deb is able to join us here today at the City Club. In honor of her many years of leadership, the Deborah VC Systems Change Champion Award has been given annually to a systems change initiative in workforce development, which has potential for significant impact, addresses racial equity, and creates learning opportunities for others in our community. Earlier today, Deaconess announced this year's awards winner. Please join me in congratulating College Now, Greater Cleveland. A competitive labor market has given rise to a new era of work, worker power. There have been successful uni, unionization efforts at corporate judge, ju, juggernauts like Amazon and, and Starbucks. And companies are reconsidering wage and benefits packages to attract talent. How can employers, workers, advocates, policymakers, and philanthropists leverage in this moment and bring about system change needed to help workers advance in their careers? And how can we learn how to rebuild the ladder of opportunity with all key stakeholders at the table? Join us today to discuss this with Todd Green an Institute Fellow and the Executive Director of WorkRise, a research to action network on jobs, workers, and mobility hosted by the Urban Institute. Todd's career has focused at the intersection of economic development, workforce development, and community development. Prior to joining WorkRise, Todd was Vice President at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, where he led the workforce development efforts across the entire federal reserve system. Todd is the chairman of the International Economic Development Council's Board of Directors and chairs the National Advisory Board of the John J. Heldrick Center for Workforce Development at Rutgers, the State of University of New Jersey. He also serves on the board of the Corporation for a Skilled Workforce. If you have a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club, 
and the City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming our Todd Green. Thank you for that kind introduction, and it certainly is uh, very much of an honor to be invited to speak uh, at this forum, which for more than a century has played an outsized role in strengthening democracy through the promotion of free speech, robust debate, and the exchange of ideas. So on behalf of WorkRise and the Urban Institute, I want to thank you, thank the City Club, Club of Cleveland for hosting us today. I also want to congratulate uh, the Deborah VZ Systems Chain Champion Awards uh, winners today uh, for their outstanding contributions to the field. And I also would like to thank the Deaconess Foundation and particularly uh, Kathy Belk uh, for the work in uh, that they're doing as well. And then lastly, uh, what would a, uh, an opportunity to speak be without a shout out to one of my favorite uh, uh, Cleveland people, and that's Joe Marinucci who's been a model and a hero for me. So I thank him for all of the work that he's done, not only here in Cleveland, but also nationally. So it's great to see you, Joe. As I look around this room today, I see a number of individuals from workforce development, economic development, community development, and human services, organizations that are connected by shared values and a common purpose. And all of you on the front lines and what I believe is the defining challenge of our time forging an economy in which every worker feels a sense of value and fulfillment from their job. An economy in which every Ohioan has a sense of economic security. An economy in which every Clevelander has a pathway for upward mobility. You are a source of inspiration to me. Your efforts are a cause of encouragement to so many in Washington, D.C., where my office is, and really around the country people who share your determination to build an economy that works for everyone. And so I just want to thank you for your tireless efforts. As you can tell from my voice, I'm definitely a child of the South. As an Atlantan for more than 30 years, I've been immersed in the history of perhaps our most famous citizen, and that is Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Nearly 55 years ago, Martin Luther King gave a speech at Glenville High, High School, just a few minutes from where we are today. He spoke to a packed auditorium of young people, mostly black students. Nearly all of them were living under a cloud of social despair and economic helplessness. Their frustration, their anger, and their impatience for equality were palpable. Our power does not lie in Molotov cocktails, our power does not lie in bricks and stones. Our power does not lie in bottles, he implored them. Our power lies in our ability to unite around concrete programs. A year after that speech in Cleveland, Dr. King made a fateful trip to Memphis to stand shoulder to shoulder with 1,500 striking sanitation workers. His decision to stand in solidarity with those workers was in many respects a public recognition that the struggle for racial equality was inextricably linked to economic mobility. That was true in 1968, and it remains true today. So we're gonna to talk today about how we can collectively think about our approach to jobs with the goal of producing real economic security and mobility. 
I'm going to share with you some research, also some insights, and some case studies that can help shape our approach to building a job market that works for both employers and also for workers. But first, let me just spend a few moments uh, at the outset to kind of paint a picture that illustrates the collective challenge we're confronting today. So I use the word collective because mobility, or the lack of it, impacts all of us in one way or another. In the four decades that immediately preceded the pandemic, the real median wage for prime age workers, that is wages adjusted for inflation for workers between the ages of 25 and 64, increased by only 7.5%. Worse, consistent positive wage growth occurred only in 10 of those 40 years that I just talked about between 1996 and 2001, and again between 2014 and 2019. Much of the increase in wages that have occurred at the bottom half of the income distribution is a result of the rise in women's labor force participation. Wage increases for men in the bottom half of careers were almost non-existent. Over that 40-year period that led up to 2020, workers in the middle of the income scale saw their wages increase by an average far below 1%. For all intents and purposes, their wages basically remain flat. So during that same period, though, from 1979 to 2019, two other things happened. Now listen to this. The overall US economy nearly doubled in size. And workers in the 90th percentile, that's the top 10% of wage earners, they saw their wages grow by 39%. In other words, uh, it grew for the people at the top, but wage growth for workers at the bottom half was, was non-existent. Against this background of stark economic disparity, the world has suddenly hit by once again, uh, once in a century pandemic. COVID, as we all know, exacerbated those economic inequalities. It's, it hit hardest among people who were already hurting and those people are mainly black and brown people. Today, people of color continue to be disproportionately represented in occupations with lower pay and less mobility. Workers of color continue to earn lower wages. They experience higher unemployment and job turnover. And they are increasingly working in non-standard work arrangements that offer less protections and fewer supports than more traditional employment relationships. As my former colleague at the Urban Institute, Stephen Brown, observes, these gaps are not the result of individual failures. Let me just say that again. They're not the result of individual failures. They reflect the effects of a host of structural disadvantages and discriminatory practices, like longstanding and uh, racial discrimination in hiring and promotion, mismatches between where people of color live and where good jobs are located, the quality of schools and neighborhoods where people of color live, the decline of unions and weakened uh, worker protections, the deleterious consequences of mass incarceration in communities of color, and wealth disparities that arise from a legacy of racism. Today, nearly a half a century after the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1964, discrimination, particularly in hiring, is a standard feature of the labor market. I know that many of you have already heard this, but it bears repeating that a foundational study found that 
resumes with white sounding names receive 50% more callbacks than resumes with black sounding names, despite identical levels of experience and qualifications. Another study found that white applicants with a criminal record were more likely to get callbacks for entry-level jobs than black men without a criminal record. Economic mobility, racial equality, they're inextricably linked, just as they were forever. So now let's talk about economic mobility and, and what it really means when we say this. A few years ago, some other colleagues at the Urban Institute uh, played a supportive role in a seminal study that sought to produce a definition of economic mobility. Now their research examined virtually all of the relevant studies, but also went into great lengths to, to, to seek input from a diverse subset of people who've experienced poverty firsthand. So one of the key insights their research from their research was that economic mobility is more than about wages and income and material wealth. Wages, of course, are foundational to upward mobility, but mobility is comprised of three other core principles. Economic success, power and autonomy, and being valued in a community. These three principles are interrelated. If your wages increase, you'll probably experience a growing sense of autonomy and a higher social status. On the other hand, suppose your employer doubled your pay but then demanded that you work erratic and unpredictable hours. You probably lose a sense of autonomy and you'll find it's challenging to participate in your family and community life. Further, when we think about economic mobility, there, there are really two types. One is uh, intergenerational so mobility, which refers to changes between a person or a household compared to the previous generation. And another way of thinking about it is intra-generational mobility, which is the change a, a, a person or household experiences over time within their own lifetime. So promoting intra-generational mobility in the labor market, particularly as it relates to workers in low-income jobs, that's our central focus at WorkWise, the organization that I, I run. Our approaches begin with an understanding that labor markets are comprised of and, and influenced by wage, a wide range of stakeholders, and they are workers and employers, of course, but also elected officials and policymakers. They're advocates, worker advocates uh, and labor unions. Academics and scholars all are, play a part of that. Workforce development practitioners, economic development practitioners, the media, philanthropy, each of these disparate entities exerts influence and shapes the labor market, but too often they work in isolation. WorkRise exists to really convene and collaborate with these frequently siloed groups. Uh, in fact, next week we're bringing together these various groups for our annual conference, which we are calling Charting a Re Resilient Future for U.S. Workers. We'd love for you to join us. You can register by going to our website, WorkRiseNetwork.org. Our purpose at WorkRise is to forge consensus around key questions that require answers, to generate ideas that are shaped by all of these relevant stakeholders, and to really identify some bold ideas. Uh, and then we test them, uh, and then we share them. And that's what I'm doing here today, to share some of these ideas. We also fund research on promising practices, policies, and programs underway across the country. And during our conference next week, we'll be announcing our next slate of grantees, and I strongly encourage you to tune in because perhaps 
there will be a Cleveland-based grantee. We'll be funding nine promising projects that will uh, test innovative programs aimed at strengthening workers through things like development of digital skills, social and economic supports, and skills-based hiring. These grants will support research into a handful of innovative programs that aim to expand economic opportunity to workers who've been left behind. We also generate data and evidence that strengthens employers, informs policymaking, and provide genuine economic mobility and securities for workers. So I wanna, now that I've talked a little bit about what it is we do um, and creating some of the tools that, that help the work, I wanna uh, maybe talk a little bit about some of our research. So now that you have a better understanding of what WorkRise does, I wanna share some of these insights that we've uncovered more recently um, as it relates to just uh, two areas I wanna speak about today. The first is about good jobs. What do we mean by it? Both the elements that constitute a good job in the context of mobility and the importance of creating a common understanding of what those elements mean among all of those stakeholders. And the second is about employer practices. So what can employers do? We wanna talk about some of these challenges facing employers as well as potential solutions gleaned from the research. So before I share some of the interesting findings of work, let's, let's take a step back and answer two questions that are foundational and set the stage. What is a good job? And why do good jobs matter? We might instinctively know what a good job or a quality job is, but I think it's important that we develop a common framework that stakeholders to use uh, when we talk about uh, what a quality job is. Understanding how various job quality elements affect workers' well-being is a critical first step toward creating good jobs. And while you can guess some of these, you may be surprised around some of these other elements. So at Urban Institute, uh, we've initiated a study to um, create this framework that really gets to what a good job is. Now we considered 11 prominent definitions of job quality, and I understand this from a diverse uh, literature and, and, and sources. And although these definitions varied in scope and complexity, they share a few common elements, and our framework synthesizes these, and I wanna share these with you. First is pay. It refers to not only the level of pay, but also predictability. The second is benefits. This includes health insurance, retirement plan, paid or unpaid leave, uh, educational benefits and tuition assistance. The third category is working conditions. This includes control over hours and the location of work, but it also talks about job security, safety, which we know that came up in the pandemic, and also non-discrimination. Now the fourth element is around business, culture, and job design. Now this includes things like a culture of belonging, a culture of diversity, equity, and inclusivity, strong organizational mission, meaningfulness of the tasks that one is performing, personal growth, um, autonomy and power to change things, and the diversity of the tasks that you're actually doing so that uh, you have opportunities to, to, to move that forward. And then also clearly define career paths. And the fifth uh, element that we came up with around what constitutes a good job is on the job skill development. The category includes specific items like training for specific tasks, 
cross-training and training and education for advancement. Now, each of these elements in isolation improve workers' lives in some way to varying degrees. Each one provides either a measure of, of greater financial stability or increased autonomy or power, or a higher sense uh, of being valued in the community. We know this because it's demonstrated by the research. Um, but in other cases, the evidence is somewhat more limited and more research is needed. Uh, so for example, we know that better wages leads to healthier workers. We know this because one study demonstrates a link between low earnings and higher mortality. Another study shows higher wages are associated with improved physical health. We also know that a well-designed retirement plans are especially important for low-wage workers, and especially workers of color, who have not historically had opportunities to increase retirement wealth. Paid family leave is also associated with improved maternal mental health and better long-term outcomes for children. And it leads to higher labor force participation and higher wage growth for women. Family leave ext uh, extends, that extends to both men and women, and paid family leave uh, for more individuals uh, that involved fathers uh, created more equitable parenting, which in turn had positive impacts for children and parental income. So that's what the research tells us. Unpredictable and erratic work schedules, There's, it's associated with uh, earnings volatility, where workers can't plan for the future because they don't have control of their time, and they don't have a sense of what future earnings will look like. Under unpredictable schedules are also associated with psychological distress. That includes not only uncertainty of guaranteed hours needed to pay bills, but also the difficulty in accessing skill development programs, figuring out bus schedules and, and the like. Scheduling predictability is so important and, and that some workers are willing to actually accept jobs with reduced wages to avoid schedules that are being set on short notice. This is especially the case for mothers who bear a disproportionate responsibility for childcare. Finding childcare is nearly impossible for a working mother who doesn't know when she'll need it or how much it will uh, cost her uh, because her work schedule is erratic and unpredictable. Workers also find jobs with greater autonomy to be more meaningful. Workers with autonomy in their jobs reported higher levels of psychological well-being. And we also note that employer-provided training, that also increases wages. So this framework, it provides a basis for empirically-backed understanding of what workers really want and what they need and what's needed to be successful. Now's the time is when I say that hot lights and a ball head don't go together. <laughs> Our radio audience won't get that. Okay. So if we want to make work more attractive, we have to start with a clear picture of specific factors that make a job attractive. But the framework does something else for us that is critically important. It also enables stakeholders to unify around something that's concrete as opposed to an abstract interpretation of what constitutes a good job. So with this framework, we don't have to rely on our instincts or emotions or gut institutions about what we think, uh, intuitions rather, of what we think is a good, uh, a good job. We know what a good job is. And I wanna just maybe share with you um, um, 
how this has worked in, in um, a, a real framework, not, the, not theoretical. So two, two years ago, some stakeholders in Atlanta decided it was time to put together a bold blueprint for economic development, a strategy centered on equity that, among other things, aimed to increase access to good jobs. But as many of you know, uh, Atlanta has experienced extraordinary growth over the last 40 years. Numerous Fortune 500 companies established headquarters or large employment hubs there. Yet for all of that investment, Atlanta routinely ranks near the bottom of in economic mobility among the 50 largest cities. So stakeholders there were specifically interested in creating good middle-wage jobs and they were able to unite around an agreed upon definition of what constitutes a good job, a job that enables upward mobility. So in Atlanta, our economic development efforts are now focused around middle wage jobs that pay a certain amount per hour. We agree to what that is. It provides full benefits. So economic development is not pursuing projects that or uh, supporting businesses that aren't uh, doing that. And it gives workers access to training. And that definition is intentional, and it was arrived through this deliberative process and a thoughtful process that was based on a framework. So last year, for the first time, Atlanta began tracking the creation of middle-wage jobs that align with their framework. Again, a good jobs framework. Atlanta created 877 of these good middle-income jobs in year one. So we know that because they've been tracking that. This year, the city began taking steps to cultivate uh, uh, these jobs by creating incentives for companies up to a couple thousand dollars per job to offset uh, employer tax obligations uh, when they're creating these uh, types of jobs. So let me just tell you, I, I just find that really exciting. I hope you do too. Uh, and it's uh, incredibly rewarding when communities are able to, to, to transform job markets, right? Job markets as a result of stakeholders and their ecosystem and working together toward a common good. Okay, now I'm gonna turn the page uh, just a bit. I wanna spend some time talking about employers in the context of worker mobility. Now, every employer I meet, and I meet a lot of them, talks to me about what can they do to attract a stable workforce. Oh, we're short on workers, okay. And as you know, this is an issue that's challenging employers in virtually every community across, and, and, and really in every industry sector. Roughly half of American businesses have job, uh, job openings that they're unable to fill. There are nearly two job openings for every unemployed worker, and more than five million jobs are currently open. All, is this to, all of that's to say is that in this environment especially, it's more important than ever that employers understand what the elements are that, different, that differentiate undesirable jobs from good jobs. So let's go over some of those things that employers can do to improve job quality, increase access to good jobs, and improve short and long-term outcomes for workers. So to every employer who wants to help reverse this 40-year trend of stalled economic mobility, here's, here's a couple things I would say. If we want to create jobs with mobility, we've got to rethink the concept of a job, a job that has been defined as centuries the, the way we think about it. it just isn't enough when a company's values and culture puts people first it becomes a lot easier to create jobs 
that align with the framework that we discussed and to, uh, we discussed and to attract workers. And while I know a lot of companies have moved in that direction, it's, it's also encouraging, but you know, here's some insights I wanna share from our research that actually supports this. So the first is scheduling matters. We've already touched on the fact that unstable and unpredictable scheduling reduces economic security. It makes income unreliable, it creates work-life uh, imbalance, and it drives people to quit. And the research tells us that stable schedules reduce employee turnover while increasing productivity. Leave benefits, they're important. They are very rare in low-wage jobs, and it will probably require some public policy interventions to make them more commonplace. Uh, paid leave, though, it does promote job continuity. Uh, we also know it's important for maintaining women's labor force participation. Hiring practices, they can make a difference. The data suggests there are a lot of jobs out there requiring degrees that don't necessarily need degrees. Loosening, I see a lot of heads nodding. Loosening these requirements is one way to support Mobility for non-college workers, there are a lot of uh, organizations that are working toward that. Promotion practices, now that, this could really have an impact. Internal promotion, our research tells us, is not currently a dominant pathway out of low-wage work. Part of the reason for that is that low-wage workers are often segregated into separate job tracks, and another reason is that there simply aren't enough high-wage positions available for them to move into. Structured career ladders that avoid segregating marginalized groups at the bottom, they're needed. Likewise, some low-wage workers may benefit from clear pathways for building skills and advancing better paying roles. So much has been talked about, about diversity and inclusion, and, and what do we really know about that? So I'll just share with you that they can broaden, DEI as what we call them, these practices can broaden access to good jobs, for workers of color who experience historic and structural disadvantages in the labor market. They can also create more inclusive environments that keep historically disadvantaged workers in those jobs. But establishing numerical targets or goals for diversifying the workforce, it broadens access to jobs that pay more or offer more advancement opportunities by encouraging hiring managers to prioritize applicants from traditionally underrepresented groups employee resource groups, uh, task forces that, uh, these also show promise. Uh, they've been effective in diversifying management ranks, for example. Uh, and overall, they can solidify organizational commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion by pulling managers and employees together across departments and job roles. So I wanna bookend this portion of our discussion with an important bookend. All of the policies we just covered contribute to worker satisfaction and, and mobility, and, and employers need to know that. But employers can also maximize the benefit of each specific practice when they deploy uh, multiples, right? Uh, complementary practices in place. Um, when these practices are initiated in isolation or when uh, contradictory practices are implemented, Typically, the impact of those policies are at best modest. So just think about this. A company says, oh, I'm going to have a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee, um, but yet I'm not going to look at my hiring and promotion policies. So that often doesn't really jive. So you, you think you're doing something right, but really you may uh, 
uh, be causing, as an employer, you may be causing yourself harm. And I want to maybe now change a little bit to talk about a case study. This is another one from Atlanta. And I know uh, that you all have a lot of work going on in Cleveland. I was able to hear about a lot of it today. It's been so exciting to learn uh, everything that you have going on. I, I want to just maybe share a, another one here. So the challenge of rebuilding labor markets, it's really complex. Uh, and it can't be tackled by any single entity in the community. It requires involvement and buy-in from all sorts of stakeholders that I, I mentioned. And we refer to this as building a comprehensive ecosystem. Uh, and it requires this building relationships on a foundation of trust and shared values. And it does not happen overnight. But when we build comprehensive ecosystems, we have a powerful mechanism for change. So I want to share with you a case study um, that I think is instructive. So about 10 years ago, a handful of leaders in Metro Atlanta came together with a shared objective. They were interested in creating meaningful connections and cooperation among stakeholders in its workforce system. Now, there were five workforce boards operating in the Atlanta area, despite there being just one labor market in Atlanta, right? Job seekers struggled with the maze of unconnected workforce development programs um, and ones that could help them with skills and training and employment services. And then employers, they complain that the metro Atlanta, the metro area, the workforce delivery system, it simply didn't work for them. Uh, despite the fact that they were on workforce boards and they took hundreds of surveys through the years, it just wasn't working. So by January 2014, a steering committee was formed and within a few months, the committee conducted a survey of providers to learn about their services, service areas, customers, funding, and partnerships. And what they learned from the survey certainly validated the perspectives of these workers and employers. The survey revealed that there were over 500 providers of workforce development services in the metro Atlanta area, with over 800 unique locations where these workforce services were being provided. None of us knew that there were 500 uh, providers, trust me, when we, this survey was under, undertaken. Now, some of these organizations were large organizations and the ones that you would expect, but then some were also very small, churches and, and, and other ones. Uh, some were for, most were for were nonprofit, but some were for profit. There was no effective mechanism to connect the various workforce providers to one another. If a job seeker needed a particular workforce uh, um, service uh, that that provider didn't offer, for example, let's just say it was um, a certified nursing assistant training. That provider could only, um, they had a little ability to even know who to refer uh, them to if they themselves didn't offer that. And employers, they also just found this situation just uh, too complicated, too difficult to figure out how to access workers or how to access training. So given the large geography of the metro area and coupled with the relatively limited transit system, it was disheartening to learn that some job seekers were in training programs clear across town from their home without even knowing that that same training was offered nearby. And perhaps most concerning from other data analyzed 
was that regional workforce training was misaligned with the region's projected employment needs. The workforce providers were training for jobs that the data revealed would not even be needed by employers in Atlanta, in the metro Atlanta region. And conversely, uh, insufficient training was being offered across the, uh, the region for occupations that we knew would be in high demand by our region employers. So given this context, leaders rolled up their sleeves and they got to work. First thing they did was they built a portal, they analyzed data, and they produced uh, an initial strategic plan. And by the end of that year, in December 2014, they launched MAX, M-A-X, which stands for Metro Atlanta Exchange for Workforce Solutions. Now at the time the initiative was launched, the concept of connecting work, work, workforce development to employers and economic develop, developers, it was uh, entirely aspirational. Providers needed help promoting awareness of their services. Decisions about new training programs were not made using data uh, or really um, robust uh, information from uh, industry and employers. There were gaping holes in the available research, holes that had to be filled with additional studies, and there were access issues that limited their ability to connect services with customers. So Max began as a workforce development network with somewhat modest objectives. They wanted to build connections among workers, employers, and economic development enterprises. They also wanted to raise awareness of their new portal, uh, and they wanted to develop a cons consistent and aligned research agenda to better address questions about the regional workforce system. And they wanted to convene stakeholders to develop strategies for mitigating issues, access issues. So for the next two years, Max convened periodic meetings of workforce development stakeholders, uh, et cetera. And they launched a data council uh, to help them collect and organize and synthesize various data into a more comprehensive picture of the region. Uh, they also um, expanded the portal. So throughout this evolution, uh, Max has had taken, undertaken deliberate efforts to maintain an inclusive and informed in, and engaged ecosystem. And let me just take a moment to, to pause here to say that even if a, uh, if, a, if a provider may not have had a lot of capacity, uh, they didn't ignore providers. So they, brought, they were ensured to meet people where they were. So okay, um, I just want to emphasize that. So uh, local uh, workforce, uh, uh, workforce boards were part of this. Academic institutions were also brought into this uh, uh, sets of discussions, state and federal agencies. Uh, and through this cooperative approach, they developed a bespoke organizational framework that's working for Atlanta. It serves as a backbone organization to help facilitate collective work and strategic partnerships. It provides networking, professional development, outreach, and curated services, uh, and it provides workshops to build knowledge and skills for the provider. So let me just also take a moment to say that because I know we have a number of workforce providers. One of the things that we found uh, in this whole MAX thing was how do workforce development providers get their training, uh, and how do we access that? So we, those were, we're, we've been strengthening that structure with all sorts of workshops and training sessions that um, have really reinvigorated, uh, but it also has provided pathways and networks that others may not have known that they have. So 
I'm incredibly excited about the work of Max. I know that, as I mentioned, I know that you have similar work that's going on in Cleveland, so I just encourage you to, to learn more and just take from that example as, as perhaps one of many around uh, 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 the country that you might be able to borrow from. So I wanna also just mention that beyond the coordination of the boards and, um, and here's, a, here's a very interesting aspect that I wanna just pin, uh, point out for you. Georgia has retained more federal dollars because of Max. So now we have an uh, organizational structure in place uh, in order to support that. Uh, and so there's also opportunities to have more focused innovation and pilots. Uh, when I was in the, uh, uh, in the VC presentation earlier today, uh, I heard about innovation. I heard a lot of, about innovation and what that mean, means, and I know uh, that was part of the award, but the ability to be able to do that and make that happen, I think, is critical. So I know it's time for me to wrap up, uh, so I'll do so. I know we've covered a lot of material today, and there's a significant amount that we didn't cover because of time constraints. Uh, but I certainly encourage you to uh, continue, take a look at our website uh, and, and learn more about that. But our power, I just want to end by reiterating those words that were spoken by Dr. King here in Cleveland more than 50 years ago. Our power lies in our ability to unite around concrete programs. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you so much, Todd Green. Uh, we are about to begin the audience q and I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here at the City Club. Today we are hearing from Todd Green, Institute Fellow and the Executive Director of WorkRise, a research to action network on jobs, workers, and mobility hosted by the Urban Institute. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org or our radio broadcast at 89.7 IdeaStream Public Media. If you'd like to tweet a question for our speaker, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And City Club staff will try to work it into the program. May we have our first question, please? Question here from our virtual audience. So it says, many analysts are suggest suggesting we are about to enter or already have entered an economic recession. What can the public, private, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors do to support workers as they weather any upcoming recession so it is not 2008, 2009 all over again? Yeah, so uh, great question. And um, just know that from my many years of working at the Fed, I want to say that these viewpoints that I'm going to share are my own, and they don't reflect anyone else's here. Uh, so, so I just say that we have, first of all, we don't have time to play, right? That's just something that uh, is said in my community. So we've got to look for ways to make our, our existing efforts more uh, more effective, and we've got to use our resources more widely. So we're in a unique moment now, right, where there's a relative worker shortage, and maybe workers have a little bit of an upper hand. So how do we take this moment to make some of these alignments that I just talked about where uh, employers can make changes about how they are valuing their workers in terms of a lot of these projects uh, that uh, these these aspects that I talked about, about job design and how they're thinking about promotion and advancement. 
But how do we make that durable so that when we do enter into a recession, we, we're, we're able to do that? And then maybe the second part, and this is just going to be very obvious to the people in this room, and that is we've got to learn about um, there's still going to be jobs out there, right, in terms of whatever the recession, recession brings us. But that means we've got to be able to be much more nimble to ensure that we are staying on top of what's happening in our labor market so that we are able to provide our job seekers with the immediate types of opportunities uh, and using those technologies that will help us uh, to, to ensure that we're connecting those workers to, uh, to, to those uh, employers. Good afternoon. Do you think that a lot of workers have uh, unreasonably high expectations about what a job entails? And if so, do you think that that's why so many workers like to do things now like lift and so on? You know, in other words, become self-employed uh, and why the gig economy has expanded so yeah. much. Thank you. Uh, great question around um, why workers are you know, maybe a different way, and you didn't say this, but some, some, you know, I, I hear this from employers all the time, workers feel so entitled or, or whatever. Well, you know, the economy has changed, uh, and people have changed, and so I think that the successful companies, the successful employers, are not going to be asking that question. They're going to be asking the question of how can they support their workers, because it's a different paradigm now. Uh, and, and so I think, yeah, I think we've, we've just got to look for, we've got to shift that, that thinking. Um, I have a niece and nephew, uh, and trust me, their ideas about work and what a, what, what a good job is, is is very different. A good job to me was, oh, I get paid and, you know, every two weeks and I get health benefits. Well, it looks a little bit different now, and we can't put that genie back in the bottle. So we've just got to accept the reality and adapt. I was wondering if RISE has done any research, funded any research uh, into the hospitality industry, because we know that they have not necessarily been seen as good jobs, but yet in a lot of urban areas, they make up a significant sector of the, uh, of the employment sector. For instance, in Greater Cleveland, it's, it's the number three sector here. So do you have any thoughts, comments on what we can do to make those less look like less transitional jobs and kind of move toward good jobs or yeah uh, so I love that question and one of the reasons I love it is that it gives me an opportunity to speak about a concept that we call job design so here in this case uh, if there is a housekeeper who is working at a hotel let's just say Maybe there's a way that the hotel management can restructure that particular job and the task to say, well, maybe that person is a housekeeper for four days of the week, and on day five, she works at the front, or he or she works at the front desk. Gaining skills, feeling valued and validated and all of those other things and setting that oneself up for a higher level skill. And maybe the person who works at the front desk does that for four days a week, and maybe on day five, they shadow the night auditor, and so on and so forth. So we need to not just say that these jobs are dead-end jobs and that they're not valued or worthwhile, but there are opportunities for us to think about how we maybe restructure the nature of work. Yeah, that might require a little bit more um, work on the employer, but I tell you, turnover is higher 
right? That, that requires more work for employers. Thank you for that question. Uh, Todd, welcome to Cleveland. It's good to see you here again. Um, wanted to, to ask you, um, given your wor uh, work at WorkRise and also your role as chairman of the uh, International Economic Development Council, and for the audience, that's the largest economic development practitioner organization in the world. Um, one of the challenges in, 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 in this dialogue is, especially for a city like Cleveland and many other cities across the country, is getting people to the jobs that are currently being created, for example, outside of the core of the city. And as we all know, the public transportation system was set up in a different era, and it's very difficult at times to be an inner city resident and get to a suburban location in a way that makes sense from a timing perspective and a family obligations and things like that. My question is, um, how, how, what research have you done on that through WorkRise, and are there any communities that are doing it better than, uh, than others in, in terms of some of the benchmarking that you're seeing? Yeah. Uh, Joe, thank, thank you for, for that. So at WorkRise, we have a whole um, kind of category of, of research that we undertake, and it's called social determinants of work. So we're looking at issues like childcare, housing, transportation, uh, all of those issues that really impact work that we don't necessarily call workforce development. Transportation, huge. Uh, and, and I'd say that a couple of things are happening in that space. One is uh, employers are just getting real, and some are saying, you know, maybe there are some opportunities for me to assist my workers with back in the day. Um, I, I, many people in this audience may not remember this, but van pools. Who remembers, who remembers those van pools? So, uh, so some of those types of um, opportunities, which we're now calling innovations, but we're bringing some of them back. I'm also very hopeful that, uh, that with infrastructure spending, that some communities will also be focused on connecting uh, transit nodes. One thing, Joe, that I want to say, and this isn't directly answering your question, but hey, I want to answer the question I want to talk about too, um, and that is maybe we should be redesigning where work is so that we can have work where people live. Now, I, I'm talking with Joe, we, we spend a lot of time recruiting companies and helping companies to grow, and I always tell economic developers, stop pressing the easy button. So if you think that just because you have a technology company, that doesn't mean that they need to live, that they need to locate in a particular part of Cleveland. It may mean maybe they could go and they could operate in a part of Cleveland. I don't know. In, 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 a, in most communities, it's the south side, but I don't know what it is here in Cleveland. <laughs> okay. So, so maybe we should be thinking differently about where work is. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Michelle Scott Taylor. I'm with College Now Greater Cleveland. Yay, we won. We're very excited. Yeah. <laughs> and the project that we put forward we put forward was really this idea of helping to change a community conversation and the culture of how we talk to young people and adults about careers and how to get to the careers. So we're in the business of helping young people and adults navigate college and career and what are those educational pathways. And you mentioned that employers, and I'm gonna say adults in general, probably needs training as well. So do you have some ideas about topics that you think providers, adults, people who help job seekers and young people figure it out. What are some training topics that you think might be 
needed. Job design was one I heard, and I thought that was great. How can we work with the community to help think about how can you redesign jobs for the workers that are coming through? Do you have other ideas about topics that we should be training our community on as we help young people and job seekers and adults figure it out? Uh, I, actually, I do. <laughs> surprise, surprise. So one that I'll mention to you, and, and one, one aspect that wasn't shared, was for a while I ran what was called the Atlanta University Center Consortium, which is the umbrella organization of the four hysteri historically, not historically, historically black colleges and universities uh, in Atlanta, so Morehouse and Spelman and Clark Atlanta University, Morehouse School of Medicine. And the career services function reported in to me. So one of the aspects that was just very interesting uh, to me, uh, and I think could be instructive uh, here in this context is, particularly in this economy, is why don't we provide students with more information about the employer? So, and when I say information, I don't mean just like well, this is the starting wage, but, and this is the benefit that you're gonna get, but what is this company's track record for promoting people? What does it look like? What are th these companies' practices around discrimination? Uh, what does it look like to actually um, to, to work in that company so that we're providing more? Look, students have choices now. They don't have to just go work anywhere. And so it would be great if we could fix this asymmetry around uh, information so that there are more opportunities to inform people so that we're not sending people to places that are they're ultimately not going to be successful. Good, uh, good afternoon. Thank you for being here. I'd like to hear your comments about emerging trends in building worker power and how they integrate with traditional labor movement. Uh, yeah. Uh, so worker power. <laughs> uh, worker power, and I'll, I'll just match this with worker power and, and worker voice. So this is, we've seen labor unions kind of um, not have the prominence, but our research does tell us that labor unions work. People need to advocate uh, for themselves. And, and this is not, a, you know, I worked at the FIT for many years and at Urban Institute. These are heavy research places. But now I'm gonna share with you a bit of research that isn't, um, it's not a randomized controlled trial or it's not any of that, but it's my Uber driver test. So when I get into my Uber, and I travel a lot, and at airports or whatever, one of the things that I ask is, oh, tell me about your story. How'd you get here? What's happening? So one thing that is consistent, I would say, with a lot of, you know, a lot of people have different reasons about what happened, but it's things like, I needed time off because my child got sick for a week and my employer wouldn't give me a leave. Or, or either, I worked at that warehouse job and I did a great job. I you know, learned how to do the forklift. Uh, I did all of that. I just didn't like how they talked to me. So when we talk about these types of issues, I also want to just mention that, uh, maybe this uh, looks like I'm closing here. So this is great <laughs> because one, and, and there's more work, I encourage you to take a look at what we're doing around this worker power, worker, worker voice. I didn't get a chance to talk about it, but what I'll end with and this is a perfect time to say it, is dignity and respect. That's what people want. It's not a mystery. So thank you for your time here. I've enjoyed being with you.
Thank you, Todd Green, for joining us today at the City Club of Cleveland. Today's forum is in partnership with the City Club Workforce Development Series with the Deaconess Foundation as part of their second annual Deborah Vesey System Change Champion Award, which was presented to the College Now of Greater Cleveland earlier this morning. We would also like to welcome guests at tables hosted by the Deaconess Foundation, Magnet, Ohio Guidestone, and R4 Workforce. Thank you all for being here today. Next Friday, we'll hear from Jasmine Long, President and CEO of Birthing, Birthing Beautiful Communities as part of our Local Hero Series and to mark Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. That form is sold out. You can join us uh, virtually or at cityclub.org uh, or on Idea Stream Public Media. That brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to Todd Green and thank you members and friends of the City Club. I'm Cynthia Connolly and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.